Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good afternoon, everyone. It is uh, November the 11th, and as we all know, we're living in very, very strange times. The weekend, we had this very surreal, I don't know if that's the right word, surreal occasion outside the Four Seasons Total Landscaping uh, place in, uh, outside uh, Philadelphia, uh, where claims that uh, the election is a complete fraud, but the New York Times finds there's no evidence of, of, of voter fraud. Meanwhile, the Secretary of State Pompeo is promising a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. So I'm not sure if it's tragic or funny or a combination of them both, but who better to talk about these strange times than P.J. O'Rourke, one of America's leading uh, satirists, humorists. He has a new book out, A Cry from the Far Middle, Dispatches from a Divided Land. Uh, P.J., uh, is it hard being a comedian these days? Very. I mean, uh, the, the, the subject matter keeps getting out ahead of you. You know, it keeps, uh, it keeps sort of... Um, giving away the punchline, you know, while you're still doing the setup. It's uh, uh, Christopher Buckley and I were talking about this. You know, he did this, came out this year with a, a wonderful uh, a, a piece. He did manage to satirize Trump uh, in, this, in his novel, uh, Make Russia Great Again. Uh, but he said it was tough going, staying out in front of the guy. Well, we won't have that problem for long. I think uh, Biden will be much easier to make fun of. Uh, I hope so. Anyway, uh, PJ, you begin the book with a quote from Steeler's Wheel. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. That dates you. It dates me too. I remember that album. <laughs> I still love that song. And actually, after this, I'm going to listen to it again. Uh, I would have played it, but I'd probably get into trouble from the record label or get sued or something. Um, are you really stuck in the middle? Do you define yourself as a centrist? Is that the the heart of your quote-unquote political discourse in this book and otherwise? No, not at all, actually. I'm a, I'm a, a, a rather conservative libertarian, um, a, um, a generally speaking, a, repun a Republican of the, of the milder sort, uh, what used to be called a country club Republican. I suppose I would be a country club Republican if I could afford a country club or find a country club that would let me in. Um, no, what I mean about the middle is that that's where real argument takes takes place. I mean, in a um, uh, a large welfare democracy like the United States is, um, uh, don't mention that we're a welfare democracy because we haven't told the kids. Uh, but nonetheless, it's true. Um, uh, almost, almost all large modern democracies in developed countries are facing the same conundrum, which is we, we, we want so much more from government, and, and, and then 
we end up getting more government than we want. And we're sort of torn between the, the two things. And so it's necessary. A lot of decisions have to be made. Resources are, are, are limited and, and, and decisions about their allocations have to be made. Um, uh, all sorts of philosophical basic decisions, what government should be involved with, what it should not. Um, um, but you don't do that um, uh, by standing on the opposite sides of a street uh, through a megaphone. Uh, and, and it's that, uh, um, yeah, so it's not that, that, that I'm a centrist. It's just that I, people need to get back in the center and argue with each other properly instead of just screaming and yelling and, and throwing things at each other. One of the things I like about the book and your work in general is you... You, and you do it in such a, a simplistic or seemingly simplistic way, but of course, the, the simpler it is, or it, the, the simpler it appears, the harder it is uh, in terms of pulling this off. Um, you you turn everything, people, ideas on their head. And and my sense about you is you're much more serious about political theory than you appear to be or you want to appear to be. As one essay in the book uh, focusing uh, a critique of... Uh, of Isaiah Berlin, you see, you see him in that caption, looking like George Smiley. Uh, negative <laughs> rights versus positive rights. It's positively confusing, but PJ, for you, it's not really positive, positively confusing. As a libertarian, are you really, when it comes down to it, a follower of Ayn Rand? Uh, you have another piece in the book in which you half make fun of your daughter when she picks up, or, or, and your daughter and your wife who read Anne Rind on a, on a long trans-Siberian uh, train ride. Is your libertarian, uh, is your libertarianism of the Anne Rind variety? Oh, no, not at all. For one thing, I'm a believing Christian and she hated religion. Uh, for another thing, I, I find her prose style impenetrable, unbearable. Uh, and for a third thing, she has this, you know, I mean, she may be making a good point, but she just won't stop making it, you know, and there is. And uh, uh, yeah, she exhausts me completely. But I do confess to having a, 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 a policy wonk side to me that enjoys Isaiah Berlin, who really does in that picture look like George Smiley's skinny brother. I happen to be reading it or rereading at the moment, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, wonderful novel. Uh, yeah, and I'm very sad about Smiley, of course, who was... Uh driven to his solitary life by his his wife, his cheating wife. I wonder if Isaiah Berlin had the same problem. Uh, you know, I don't know. I've never looked into Isaiah's personal life. I know he got chased out of Germany, but that wasn't by a wife. He had a very Berlin. rich wife, which I think allowed him his, his ah, lifestyle. Of, uh, he, he married yeah. an American heiress. I hope she behaved herself. Uh, I, I, I hope so, too. Yeah. Uh, so are you a follower of basically of Berlin, of his idea of negative freedom, of basically being able to escape politics? I um uh, uh I I am a fan of 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 Berlin without saying I, I couldn't say I'm a follower of his because he didn't really put things in that term in those terms. He didn't really have a set ideology. Um if I, if I were to follow somebody, it would probably be somebody more like Frederick Hayek or um, Milton and Rose Friedman, um, you know, in terms of the importance of the uh, of the free of material freedom to freedom in general of the free market to to liberty as we know it. Um, 
those 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 would be my my uh, probably my closest affinities, I suppose. I don't so actually. You're, oh, so I'm you're sorry. an unabashed capitalist, essentially, in your in your following of of Hayek and 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 Friedman, in your embrace of the free market, but you you won't embrace uh, you won't embrace um, uh, Rand because she's boring. Well, partly because she's boring, and partly because she's just too damn ruthless. I mean, it's important to note that neither Hayek nor Friedman, um, nor either of the Friedmans, because they were, they were both distinguished economists, um, uh, the, um, uh, uh, none of those three were uh, completely turned their back idea, uh, on the idea of any redistribution within a society. Uh, all of them felt a... a, a uh, uh, one of the things I tried to explain in my little article about uh, uh, positive rights and negative rights is that well, I don't like the idea of positive rights, the, my, the idea of people saying I have a right to housing, I have a right to food, I have a right to education. That doesn't absolve us of the duty to make sure that people do get educated, make sure people are housed, make sure people don't starve. Uh, I, I think positive rights are better set up as, 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 as social duties. And I, I feel a pretty strong sense of social duty, whereas uh, Ayn Rand had a, a, a tendency to, well, uh, well, is it Trollope in his, his autobiography said, give a man a hammer and he will hit things with it as hard as he can. He was talking about literary critics, but but he might have been talking about Ayn Rand type political philosophers. You know, she had a point, but she insisted on hammering it a little too hard. The book, PJ, is supposed to be funny, but um, it's not really that funny. You're pretty serious in many ways. Uh, you're, you're funnier than most serious people, but, but it's a very <laughs> critical book. You say... At the beginning of the book, what this country needs is fewer people who know what the country needs. We'd be better off, in my opinion, without so many opinions, including my own. Is the problem, PJ, in America over the last 25 years, the Internet, the digital revolution, the fact that now everyone has their own printing press and record studio and movie studio, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? Oh, it's certainly a big part of the problem. I mean, uh, um, if, if we're looking to have, I was talking earlier about people yelling through megaphones and now everybody's got one. Um, but it is, um, uh, it is an irony for somebody who is uh, very devoted to the idea of freedom of expression that unli unlimited ability to express ourselves often leads us to um, saying all sorts of things that we probably should have kept our mouth shut about. Uh, it is not to be forgotten that when the printing press was invented, and what a marvelous thing uh, that was, and, and, and neither you nor I would be doing what we're doing if, if, if it hadn't been, but the, the, the first and primary effect of the printing press being uh, invented was to print the Bible, thereby setting off the 30 years war. So I'm thinking that if the past is anything to go by, it's going to take us at least 30 years to recover uh, from the invention of social media, um, but it will cause a terrible, is causing, has caused already terrible havoc. Um, I think the chapter uh, that I talk about that is called uh, uh, um, Whose Bright Idea Was It to Put Every Idiot in, the, in Touch with Every Other Idiot? <laughs> yeah, and that's pretty funny. And of course, the, the 30 years war, the equivalent of the 30 years war of the early part of the 21st century is what you call, uh, PJ, Coastals versus Heartlanders. You have a wonderful section essay on that. Uh, uh, one of the things I think that was particularly amusing was how you argued that Trump is actually 
uh, a coastal dressed up as a Heartlander and Elizabeth Warren the reverse. Uh, explain to me this coastal versus Heartlander civil war in America. Well, I think the simplest way to think about it, of course, it's not really a matter of physical location because coastals exist in a sort of archipelago all across the little college towns and hip sections of big cities of America. And then there are, of course, coasts that don't have any coastals like the Gulf Coast, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, or the coast of Alaska, uh, quite short on coastals. Basically, coastals are the people who can tell you all about how um, uh, 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 this, that, or the other thing is GMO-free and vegan and fair-traded and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, it contains no growth hormones and, and so on and so forth. But they don't know hay from straw. And um, this leads to a certain tension between types of people. Uh, certain people who are, live in the, in the abstract as opposed to people who live in the, in the, in the sort of real straw and hay world. Uh, and uh, tell me a little bit about Warren. I love that piece. Uh, exposing Warren, I guess, is the right word to put the right the right way of putting it. Exposing Elizabeth Warren as a heartlander, even though she's beloved by the coastals. Well, yeah, there is something uh, there is something sort of Oklahoma about her. I mean, I think that that, that if you went over to to Elizabeth Warren's house and, and and got a salad, it would probably have tiny marshmallows in it. You know, I'm 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 pretty sure that she uses Miracle Whip instead of mayonnaise, uh, and, uh, and 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 white bread instead of rye, or whole wheat. Um, uh, it, it, but this is just a guess on my part. She may have been, you know, she may so have converted. Been, I know you're in New Hampshire. You haven't been invited over to Elizabeth's house yet. She's uh, no, and I, I I don't I don't think I soon will be. She was. Uh, God, she 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 just had she had this terrible thing going for her. Leaving quite aside whether one agrees with her ideas or disagrees with her ideas, is that she had this this terrible way about her where she just felt. I think she reminded everybody of that teacher that we had, who would give pop quizzes on Friday after lunch, and who right at the end of the day on Friday would assign the mill on the floss book report due Monday morning. Um, there was just something, you know, uh, uh, about the way she spoke to us, the voters. That there was a funny incident with her, um, not with her actually, but I was covering the, I was on a radio show uh, covering the New Hampshire primaries, and Elizabeth Warren got beaten rather badly in the primaries, and the radio host uh, 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 saw our governor in New Hampshire, Governor Chris Sununu, um, whom I know. And had invited him over to the uh, to to the table where we were sitting with our microphones, and and the radio host said, uh, um, "Governor Sununu, uh, you know, we're just getting the returns in. It seems like Elizabeth Warren is is taking a real beating here. Did she do something wrong in New Hampshire?" And Sununu, without missing a beat, says, "Yes, she campaigned here." <laughs> Causing a long moment of dead air on the radio. Well, to be fair, PJ, we can't just be bashing the, the Dems. Let, let's have a shot at the Republicans too. I mean, oh, I'm easily, easily got, done, easily yeah, done. I'm curious yeah. your take on the, the current vice president, particularly in, in this image with the fly on his head. My Mike Pence. My girlfriend claims that he masturbates a lot. I'm I'm not sure how she knows, <laughs> but um, yes, yeah. is uh, is 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 Pence a coaster or a heartlander? Is oh, he a Pence is, 
Pence, whom I've met, is all Heartlander. Um, um, he Genuine? Is, um, he has no coastal oh, ab Absolutely. No, I, I don't think he has any coastal pretensions. Uh, he's... Uh, uh, he, he, he may be a know-it-all. I mean, most politicians are. But if so, with Pence, it would be a, a quiet Midwestern sort of unassuming know-it-all. Very personable man in person, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, and quite sort of uh, a, a, a good listener, uh, one might say. I kind of, I kind of like uh, 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 Mike Pence. It's his boss uh, that gives me the willies. Um, well, don't it's... talk about the Willies on this show, PJ. Um, <laughs> I know we have the FCC uh, to consider. We have children watching. Um, you suggested earlier, you claimed earlier that you're a big fan of Milton Friedman and Hayek, the two arch priests of free market capitalism. And yet one of the most trenchant critiques in your wonderful new book is of the wealthy. You say it's time to make rich people uncomfortable again. And your critique of the wealthy is a, a sartorial one. But what is it about the rich that gets on your nerves so much these days? Yes, it's wearing their underwear in public. I mean, Martin like, Zuckerberg. Uh, I like this, this image of, of Mark Zuckerberg or or looking like uh, what sort of a, a cheap version of Brooks Brothers with uh, Bill Gates, right? Yeah, well, yes. I mean, actually, Bill over there is looking more Kmart, I think. Than, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, well, I couldn't think. Than, I've never been there, but... Uh, <laughs> Brooks Brothers, yeah. It really looks like he got his sweater out of the lost and found bin. Um, and stop this. Well, I mean, there was a time, uh, you know, within living memory when, when wealth was far more unequally distributed than it is now when there were only a very few very rich people and many, many, many very, very poor people. And yet the poor people didn't feel the same envy for the rich that I think they do now. And one of the reasons was quite simple, is it looks so damn uncomfortable to be rich. I mean, if you were to be rich, you, 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 you had to be all buttoned up and wearing a necktie at all hours of the night right. and day. And, you know, or, 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 gosh, women, you know, I mean, they might as well have been in off-the-shoulder burkas for all the clothes that they had to wear. And a bustle, imagine that. You know, every time you turn around, you knock the parlor made down. And so, you know, being rich just looked stiff. It looked uncomfortable. Um, you had to wait until 8 o'clock at night to have dinner. And then when you did have dinner, you would have all sorts of strange things like pheasant under glass, which sounds breakable, uh, a turtle soup. Ugh. Uh, I, you never had a good kielbasa. And uh, you, you never knocked the, the, the yeah, everything was served on tiny little plates and tiny little glasses. And even when the rich were out having fun, it didn't look much like fun, you know, getting soaking wet on their yachts or breaking their neck on their polo ponies or uh, <laughs> walking around with a stick in their hand doing this stupid thing called golf. Um, yeah, so poor people, you know, would look at the rich with a certain amount of pity. You can still see it in the Marx Brothers and the Margaret well, Dumont. Why is that? Well, I was reading that, and it occurred to me, PJ, that the reason why rich people want to look so um, relaxed and you're relaxing now, smoking on screen. I love the one thing I love about the pandemic is the first time I've been able to smoke on television since the 70s. <laughs> um, one of the, the reasons, my sense, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong here, correct me if I'm wrong, is that they don't want to appear privileged. 
the one thing you don't say at a dinner party amongst privileged people is that you were born to privilege. No one shows off about being from wealthy backgrounds. No one shows off about having advantages. Everyone, and this is, I think, a feature of our education system, is supposed to be suffering. Why can't people enjoy privilege anymore, PJ? Oh, I don't. You know, I think they do enjoy their privilege immensely. But they don't. But they don't they don't look the it. part. They don't boast. The, why can't we boast about privilege? Oh, yeah. yeah. I suppose it's the high poppy th idea. If you stick your head up too far among uh, your, your your supposed co-equals, you'll get your head chopped off. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it's not so much that I wish people would boast about, about privilege, but with privilege comes responsibility. And when someone's walking around in their underwear in public, they simply don't look responsible to, to, to me. You know, it's sort of like Rodin's The Thinker. I've always felt, you know, I'd take his, whatever he's thinking about, I'd take it more seriously if he put his pants on. Well, there you have it. Mark Zuckerberg, if you're watching, and uh, Jeff Bezos, put your pants on. Look like the wealthy, privileged people you are. So you've gone after, PJ, you've gone after the wealthy, you've gone after Democrats and Republicans, and of course, uh, the other uh, sacred thing about America are children. And you go after them in your book, too, in a couple of chapters. Why kids are commies and woke to the sound of laughter. Is the problem with young people today in America, PJ, that, that they're both puritanical and communist and that this combination is catastrophic? Yes, and, and not only is it catastrophic, but it's also, for someone my age, extremely familiar because what people forget about the 60s was the enormous sort of moral puritanism that came along with all the uh, all the sexual and and recreational drug and 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 other sorts of license that 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 uh, that the 60s uh, is remembered for also came along with a terrible self seriousness and it's and 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 a sort of puritanical attitude towards materialism of any kind uh, uh, you know, the whole world of the squares and their, their sort of greedy warmongering. Um, uh, we were a, very, a terribly self-serious generation back in the 60s. And, and yet given you do have this essay in the book saying what we can learn from the 60s drug culture. Are there any positive lessons from the 60s that we can learn, PJ? Actually, having researched that quite thoroughly back in the 60s, <laughs> And then considered it carefully because I, I, the occasion for me writing that essay was uh, uh, the last round two years ago of legalizing um, uh, uh, legalizing marijuana, which we just saw another round of, 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 of drug legalization in the current election cycle. And uh, so, yeah, I was pondering what lessons and I, I it came up with the answer. None, actually. Actually, I forgot to ask you in this heartland versus uh, coastal thing. I've got a couple of photos of you, young, a uh, young PJ, presumably uh, imbibing in something illegal, and an older one. Uh, are you a coastal or a heartlander? I know you're in New Hampshire, which is sort of core. It's 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 heartland on the coast, isn't it there? Well, yes, yeah, a little bit, and we're actually not even that close to the coast, so yeah, it's pretty heartlander-ish around here. But I did. I came, you know, I was born and raised in the, in the Midwest. But I, I came east to Ohio. Uh, we had a Ohio, show in Ohio, yes. Ohio. So uh, you you mentioned that. Are you uh, are yeah. you uh, proud of that? That you're from Ohio? Round on the ends and high in the middle. Absolutely, Buckeye till I die.
Um, but I'm absolutely proud of it. Nonetheless, I did move. I moved east to go to graduate school in 1969, and I've never gone back. Um, so I'm afraid that, um, yeah, that I'm, I'm afraid certain coastal attributes have, have been acquired, will I, nil I. Well, I think you're, even if you wouldn't admit it publicly, a, a proud American. You have an essay uh, at the end of the, the final essay in, in, in the book, What I Like About You, essay, essay in brackets. Uh, and you're also... Yes. I'm not, no, and in fact, I, I freely admit it. I'm a very proud American. Uh, and the reason I'm a very proud American is I have been elsewhere. I spent 20 years as a foreign correspondent. Um, I filed from um, some 40-some countries, uh, uh, none of them the nice ones. Uh, I have a comparative basis. I'm not talking about minor variations on the American theme. I'm not talking about being, you know... Um, um, uh, you know, anti-French or anti-German um, uh, or anti-British for uh, anything like that, uh, because we all fall into the same sort of general category of developed Western democracies. Well, you can but, say it on this show, PJ. Is there anyone, any particular culture you don't like? No, no. Uh, but uh, but I do find that there are within every culture there are some pretty pretty damn dislikable people and you 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 want to keep the cultural lid on uh, i think yugoslav former yugoslavia is a good example of not keeping the cultural lid on the bad yeah. people you may have running around um i i don't think i've ever seen anything as uh, as sad and stupid as as the war in bosnia and and the, yeah. and the following conflict in kosovo i've seen things that were worse uh like some Malia and like the civil war in Lebanon and um, but but I, I I can tell you what those worst things were were about. Uh, no one has ever been able to tell anything about what was going on in the Balkans. What that was about, starting right. you know. Um, well, I lived in uh, I lived in Sarajevo between eighty two and eighty three. So that's ah. a, uh, that's a show for another conversation. But coming back to this. Coming back to you, as you, and you, you have an essay about distinguishing between nationalism and patriotism. I think you are maybe not a, a hardcore nationalist, certainly a patriot. You're proud of being an American. And, and this came up in, in one of the more serious essays in the book about the inaugural address you'd like to hear the president, whoever he may be, deliver uh, in January. We hope, I think you and I and everybody else watching this, that it will be, and we expect it will be Biden. What would you like him to say? Um, briefly, uh, PJ, uh, Biden in, in January, when he when he stands up, there won't be a crowd there because of COVID. What, what, what is the address that you want to hear from Biden? I, w I want to hear the president of the United States say that, look, my job is simply not that important. I work for you. My job is, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm management, but you're you're the stockholders and the clients all at the same time. And, uh, and, and I, the, the position simply is not, it is not magical. Um, it is not limitless in its power, uh, nor should it be. And um, uh, I, I, I would simply like a little humility to, 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 to be shown. Um, that, that would do. Anything else would be, you know, a little extra.
I think we'll get humility. Uh, whether I think so too. Genuine yeah. or fake is another thing. Finally, well, uh, PJ, yeah. at the end of these uh, these interviews on 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 the show for Lit Hub, we always ask the author for their choice of a book that people should be reading in these strange times. You're in New Hampshire. I'm in California. But I'm going to force one on you because you have, a, a, again, another wonderful essay in the book. Big Brother and everyone else is watching you. Thoughts on rereading 1984. Why in November 2020 should people be rereading 1984, PJ? Ah, yes, because, so you, in a way, you have picked my book choice for me. Everyone should read 1984 at least three times at three different stages in their life. When I first read it, when I was sort of ordinary Midwestern high school kid um, uh, uh, in Ohio, I uh, I read it and I thought, this is what the commies are trying to do. This is what the, the USSR and, and Red China are trying to do to us. Then when I read it again, um, when I was uh, uh, going through my sort of hippie leftist stage, I thought, this is what the man is trying to do. You know, this is, this is what the squares are trying to do. This is what America, spelled with three Ks, is trying to do. Then when I read it as a grown-up, I realized, in, especially in the, uh, in the wake of the invention of social media and electronic media, I said, this is what we're doing to ourselves." I mean, no one has imposed the telescreen on us that watches us while we watch it. We go out and pay our own good money voluntarily for dozens of these things that are scattered all over our house. We've got one in our hand. We've got one on our lap. We've got one on the desk. And we've got one wherever else people put these things, and I don't even want to know. And uh, so, yes, the, the 1984 message It's also... When you read it as an adult, um, it is uh, a, a uh, it is a more tragic novel about about human frailty and about love and so on in a way um, that you know that, that Orwell's depiction of this world of 1984 is so vivid and it was so novel the first time, especially when I read it, that it distracted me from the fact that there, there that there are two. That there's Winston and 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 his lover, who are two genuinely drawn human beings at, at, at the heart of this of this novel. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.